Hello, I'm Diana Edwards. This is Our Stories, Conversations on Conscious Living and Dying. All of these stories are courageous journeys of self-awareness and healing, often told by guests who have never been interviewed before. While each story is unique to the individual, these beautiful stories remind us that the human experience is a collective experience. And so, the wisdom you will hear and feel can speak to us all. Welcome to Our Stories. So we're back from break, and I'm here talking with Shar about her journey, really through the complications of the different grief processes she has had to go through in her life and into her healing. I want to now move the conversation into discussions on conscious parenting, because now your daughter is born, grown, and you have had such a beautiful journey with her that you're going to share with us. But I want to point out someone I'm a big fan of so that the listeners have some resources. And her name is Dr. Shafali Sabari, and she has a book called Conscious Parenting. She actually has a new book out, too, on helping your child with anxiety. And there are lots of TED Talks with her and all sorts of interviews all over the Internet. But she is really beautifully well-spoken and has conceived of a lovely book called Conscious Parenting that really explains why the old paradigm of fixing, controlling, having agendas for our children just doesn't work and that it's time to really take on a new approach to parenting which she calls conscious parenting. So anyone interested in this topic, after you know, Shara and I speak, I would suggest you go look at some of her internet, YouTube interviews. She's certainly out there with the TED Talks, and she was on Oprah many, many times, and of course, buying her books are very helpful. So I just wanted to make sure that I said that up front, because we do refer to her work a little bit in this next segment. So Shara, thanks for taking a break. It's, you know, we're talking about some big things, And it's nice to just kind of stop for a minute, get some fresh air, and just ground back into where we're heading. So I want to now ask you to share a little bit of parenting your daughter. Mm -hmm. You introduced me to Dr. Shafali more recently, and, um, you know, conscious parenting is not the term I ever would have um, come up with for it. I think how I've seen myself as really being on the job um, because I I see a lot of parents um, not doing the job that I I think is required. So I I somehow went into this with some good instincts or at least the ability to pay attention to my instincts. And while it has often felt like I was swimming upstream, I have usually ended up feeling very validated in the choices I've made in parenting. One of the things I love that you said that is very conscious parenting is that you have always looked at your unmet needs and seen them as the triggers as you raised your daughter. What do I mean by that? Well, for one, you weren't parented at all and supported And I love how honestly and authentically you said to me, you know, I even got jealous of my daughter having me as a parent. 
<laughs> Can you yeah. say a little bit about no, that? There, I mean, there have been a lot of moments. And I mean, first of all, I would say that my daughter was born with a mirror in her hand and has been holding it up to me um, from day one. So there's just so much reflected back. Um, and I think I learned pretty early on how to, um, whenever I was struggling in parenting her through different ages or stages, I would stop and consider what my life had been like at that age. Um, so having come from um, really not receiving any parenting or love, um, it kind of made me an expert in um, what needed to happen, what, what needed to um, be offered. Well, you bring up a really good point there, which is our children are giving us the opportunity to see where we need to fix ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, for example, what about when she cried? Because I know you have often said crying wasn't an option for you. Right. In fact, just to go back, I was so touched when you shared that during one of these particularly difficult periods between 12 and 18, when you were kind of coming and going from different places to live, at one point you went to the home you thought you were in only to find, you know, the you had had all mm. your clothes packed up <laughs> and put in bags. Yeah. Like, well, you know, we need our space back. You, you know, you need to find another place to live. And the just, A, the shock of seeing that when you think finally you have a place to land that's safe for a little bit. And your friend said to you, would you mind sharing that conversation you had with your friend? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got to what was my home and found everything I owned um, in a hefty bag lining the driveway. There was no conversation. There was no discussion. Um, and as I stood there looking at these bags and, and processing what was happening, my friend said to me, aren't you going to cry? And, and I said, well, first I need to figure out how much of this is going to fit in your car. Um, so, you know, I think out of necessity, there wasn't always a lot of time for feeling my feelings. Um, there was, you know, just pragmatically, I had to kind of keep moving on. And that was your sense of always moving forward. Yeah. Which was a great survival technique at the time. And as often seen in relationships as we grow older, relationships with ourselves, the survival te techniques that worked when we were children they don't mm -hmm. serve us anymore as adults, or mm -hmm. we just burn out, or it's like they've reached their maximum capacity and we just have to look at them. And to that point, having a child, you know, when ch children cry over so many little things, because that's all they know how to do is express tears. They don't have the mental capacity to say, you know, mommy in, in kindergarten today, I was deeply disturbed by, <laughs> you know, they just, it makes them feel sad. How did you handle, would be my question, how did you handle seeing your daughter crying? Was it a trigger for you at all? Um, maybe, but I think we did a lot of talking. Um, we've always done a lot of communicating from a very early age. We would talk things through. Um, so if she had a tough day in kindergarten, we would really talk about, you know, what the experience had been, what it meant, um, whether it belonged to her or not, um, and where that other person must be coming from. Um, in order to say the things they did or do the things they did. So there was always a lot of communication. Um, she's a great communicator. She really is. Yeah. She really is. So when she had feelings, how did you talk to her about 
feeling sad. And I'm going to point out something here that matters to me in language. I always try to make sure people I work with use the right language as far as not in a way to self-deprecate or to trap themselves. And what do I mean by the latter, trapping themselves? So if you sit there and you say, I'm sad. Okay, we all know what that means, but I would rather you say, and it's subtle, I'm feeling sad. Because now we have the two file cabinets Mm -hmm. again, right? I can say, well, what is your sadness that you are feeling? What is, can you tell me about that sadness? As opposed to you are sad. Because that feels like a label. That feels like that becomes an interjected voice that I mentioned earlier. Well, you know, I've always been a sad person or something. See how it can easily, and it's subtle. It's subtle, but from where I sit, listening to stories for 30 plus years, I see how the subtle can become so deeply permanent and part Mm -hmm. of someone's self-identity. So one thing I try to do with adults and children is separate that feeling out. You aren't sad. You might be feeling sad. And then we could do that exercise you and I did earlier Mm -hmm. about, you know, what's behind the sadness. And it's usually fear or love. Well, sadness is rarely love. It's in my knowledge, never at all, it would lead to a fear of not being accepted or fear of, you know, being kicked out of the school or whatever that child might have. So where does something like that fit in your conversation with your daughter, even today, now that she's much more of a young adult, when she wants to talk about feelings specifically, intense feelings? I've I've had to sort of consciously teach her to um, experience her feelings and talk about her feelings because I've had such a lifetime of um, tucking those things away and and trying not to feel the vulnerability myself. So it's, it's been a good practice um, having her come to me with problems and, and the two of us walking through them together. Yeah. I've had to, uh, you know, see my own, my own limiting behaviors and and um, offer her a, a a better opportunity to experience her feelings. I love how you said that she's now developed the ability, or actually, I think she had it earlier. You said at a pretty young age to call you out. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think because you know, I really have worked very hard with her on her communication skills, um, and so there may be a time that I'm. Um, you know, going after her about something, um, telling her off about something or, you know, upset over one thing or another. And, um, she every now and then can really nail me, um, whether it's, you know, in my selfishness or, um, my overreaction. And generally when she does do it, it's, I mean, it's pretty clear and obvious in the moment, but, you know, rather than admit that I'm clearly wrong. Usually what I tell her is, okay, I'm going to have to give that some thought and get back to you. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, (laughs) okay, but that's still pretty far down the conscious path of parenting. (laughs) So I love that you say that and that you've developed that as kind of a way to give yourself pause, space to breathe. Yeah. But what I love, Shar, is that you really do give it some thought and you really do get back to her. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's terrible having <laughs> it's <laughs> having terrible. to come back to your kid and and own, you know, own your mistakes. Um, 
or your shortcomings. It's yeah, she's she's become very good at um, self reflection and articulation, and she can see when I've you know when I've tripped myself up. But what you said that really touched me as well is one of the techniques you use when you do take that time to honor something she's pointed out as maybe not being sort of fair to the moment in your conversation is that you said you take the time to zoom out. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how zooming out works for you? Because maybe some of our listeners would like to try incorporating that, not only with their children, but with their partner or boss or themselves. Zooming out, I think, is for me a a moment of of stepping back and um, really trying to look at the situation. I think almost like leaving my body and, and going to a certain corner of the room to see to try to see the this the situation as a whole, um, because I I you know I want to be an advocate um, and a safe place for my daughters. So um, you know I can't I can't do that if I'm stuck in my own uh, agenda or my own controlling agenda, which is really a place I like to be. <laughs> my <laughs> my own controlling agenda. That's my favorite place. Um, but I can't, you know, I, I, can't, I don't want to lose her as an audience. And I really do want to be the, the source of information as much as possible for her. So if I can step back uh, and look at it from different angles, especially from hers, then I know how I can best serve her in that moment. And, you know, maybe it works her way, maybe it doesn't, but it also gives her an opportunity to... Um, kind of uh, digest what it is I'm, I'm saying to her, presenting to her. Well, and the biggest thing, in my opinion, is you're role modeling a process. Mm-hmm. You're giving her the opportunity to see how to do this for herself, mm-hmm. with her friends, maybe with her future yeah. partner or child or a boss. I mean, that's a great skill to teach anyone who has a boss. Yeah, or teachers. Exactly. She's had to do it with teachers. Mm-hmm. Where she can zoom out and see the bigger picture, their perspective. So again, uh, one of my favorite things is role modeling. I mean, they talk about all sorts of things we can learn from, books, this and that. But the greatest teacher are our role models. So you're showing her how, you're role modeling how to solve this for herself down the road and giving her another really powerful skill. Now, one of the things you say is, she knows we will create opportunities for her to make her own decisions. And she's older now. And I love that because she is at an age where it is, you know, not just decisions about whether she wants to eat this or that. Mm-hmm. Big, big decisions. Yeah. That. And how did you come to that? That's just such a lovely thing. To well, hear you, say. I, you know, I think having a, a teenager or the years of approaching the teens um, the big concern is the rebellion um, and and the f- fear I have around having a child who's rebelling is that she would put herself in an unsafe situation. And since my goal is her safety and well-being, it wouldn't really serve for me to put a bunch of unrealistic ideals around her. Um, so that doesn't mean that she gets to go wherever she feels like it, but it means that as we progress in the years, um, we will try to create the safest possible situation for her. And that 
means we're going to have to start figuring out how she gets to make certain decisions because she'll need to. She'll be with her friends and her friends want to do this thing that she's not supposed to be doing or she's not supposed to go to that place. She very much needs to be empowered to make good decisions for herself. And it's it's not always going to be what I wanted it to be. Well, I just want to honor you for coming up against so many of your own triggers from your unmet needs as a child and looking at them so consciously and challenging yourself to be the best you can be in every moment. And as you said, it's not that you don't make mistakes. It's not that you don't have to go back and undo something you wished you hadn't done. But to come from that place of trying to always see it in the most conscious, aware state of mind is really a beautiful, beautiful thing for me to have seen, because I've known you through her being raised by you. And I appreciate you sharing that and role modeling what that looks like for our listeners. Now, I want to get back to the subject of the complicated grief before we end. Mm -hmm. So you were growing up very much focused on survival. We went through how you created opportunities for yourself in your early 20s and so forth. But all through that, your only kind of process for dealing with the grief around not having the parents you wished you had had was the anger and rage. Mm -hmm. And you said later in your 20s, in your later 20s, that started to shift. And you came up against grief in different ways, different emotions. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because then we're going to go into how you then recently role modeled that again so beautifully for your daughter. Over the years, I sought out different forms or modalities of of therapy and healing. Um, So it was a pretty um, conscious effort to look at my own baggage and, um, and, you know, sort of clear it up for myself, which I guess is a lifelong process, really. Um, But it was in, in experiencing these different therapies or modalities that I was able to look at, you know, this anger and rage that had been such a survival mechanism and really appreciating it. I I don't shun it at all. I am grateful for my anger and rage and fire. Um, but there's a point at which I, I had to learn to thank it and um, release it. Well, I don't know if I've totally released it. <laughs> But I've, I learned to, to thank it and um, let it know that I, that I didn't need it so much anymore, that I needed to operate from a different place. When you were talking about your parents, when I deal with complicated grief around these type of relationships with someone, often I'll say, you know, your parent's still alive. You don't have a relationship with them. But when they do die... What do you think that's going to be like for you? You know, we talk about the feelings that may come up because, you know, just because maybe they're numb to those thoughts or feelings, we kind of want to open that door so it doesn't have so much power. And very often what I hear is, I don't think I'll feel sadness or grieve the mother who died, but I'm going to have a hard time grieving the mother I wished I'd had. Well, so my father... I, I never knew him. I never met him. He has never been a part of my reality. 
Um, and I've never been particularly concerned about that. Um, I've never felt like I was missing anything. Um, there wasn't like a tugging at my heart. Um, there was never an expectation. So really it's just, it's just sort of non-existent to me. I don't know that I ever even grieved the idea of not having a father. I've had good male role models here and there. Um, while imperfect, still offering, um, what I may have needed from a father figure, but I don't, I never, I think consciously felt like I was missing out on not having a father. And then with my mother, I think I probably, um, grieved that in different ways over the years, especially, um, when I was younger, I don't even know if I'll know if and when she dies. Um, and, you know, if, if I do one day get the news, I can't imagine, I really can't imagine what that experience will be. I think I learned to forgive her a long time ago. Um, I don't, I don't hold anything against her. I, I don't want her in my life, but I don't, I don't wish her ill. And I feel compassion for what it must be to operate in her mind um, I, it, it can't be nice. And so I, I do feel compassion for her. And, and I would imagine in hearing of her death, um, I would feel that, that same compassion. Um, but it's really hard for me to imagine what, if any, the grieving process would be around that. Do you feel you have the support network at hand when that day comes for people to be there for you that you could reach out to? Oh, yeah, I'll be calling you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you'll be another episode is what I'm hearing. Well, I would be honored if you called me. I really would. It's it's just been such a delight to have this conversation with you today. I want to end on a recent experience where you took the opportunity to teach yourself and your daughter and your husband shared in on this as well beautifully the death of a little bunny rabbit named Picky. And the reason this is so touching to me is I actually told your story a little bit in po the podcast I did recently on the power of the death of our pets to teach us to be our teachers. So if you don't mind, since I have Picky's mom here, <laughs> <laughs> ending on how you all handled an actual physical death recently and the gift you gave your daughter and if you could start by telling us about little Picky and what happened to him that gave him such a complicated little life. Yeah, um, he was a little tiny lion's head rabbit. So really, he looked more like a gremlin than a rabbit. But um, just, you know, barely two handfuls of a rabbit. Um, at six months old, he somehow damaged his spine, which at the time rendered him paralyzed. He couldn't, he didn't have the use of his back legs. And I discovered the bunny dock through her magical hands gave him another five years of um, hopping and running, albeit with a gimp. He ended up having a good life. It, he, it was a little high maintenance and he had to um, see the bunny dock fairly regularly. But, you know, we we got five um, really sweet years out of this little guy. He was kind of a pill. He was not like a cuddly, sweet little bunny. He was 
um, his royal highness who is on this planet to be served. Hence his name, Picky. Yeah. <laughs> I me. love that you named him yeah. Picky. <laughs> um, but he was just such a huge presence for such a teeny tiny little animal. Um, and this summer, his back kind of took a turn for the worse. And he just stopped responding to sort of the physical therapy that he had always done so well on. And it was really hard for me to um, figure out whether it was time for him to go. And that was why... Um, I had asked you about it because I kept waiting for him to tell me. I kept waiting to um, feel clear that he was done. And I couldn't quite get that from him because he was so tenacious. He was so obstinate that he would have just kept, you know, barreling through however he had to. As long as I was here to serve him, he was happy to keep... (laughs) suffering through. And I had to finally, um, I think I finally one day recognized that if nothing else, he was exhausted. And I had to make the very big girl decision that this was not a super dignified life that either one of us was living in, in, in this care that he needed. So I, I had to make the decision, a horrible decision. <laughs> it's a terribly adult thing. And I felt like my daughter was a little upset with me at first for having made the decision, but actually with, you know, with your help and, and a bit of uh, counseling over the weekend, um, before we helped him exit, I think we all kind of came to realize the gift we were, were giving him and, in, in um, just kind of releasing him from this, you know, flawed little body of his. What I, I love, and I saw the same thing with my dog, Patu, who I had to make a similar decision, was, so you make the decision, you know it's coming in a few days, you found a, a wonderful vet who was coming to the home mm-hmm. to help um, with the process at your home, and you decided to feed him his favorite little foods and make it a really special day mm-hmm. and be in as much joy and positivity for him as you all could be. And I love, you had a very similar response to, to me. When I gave Patu his last meal and you gave Picky his last meal, which I think was a raspberry and some dill or certain <laughs> herbs he loved. And you said he had all this energy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I talk about it in the podcast because one of the things we see around death and dying very often is when a person's close to the end, they don't want to eat, they don't want to drink. Mm-hmm. And here we both had these little pets who couldn't have been happier mm-hmm. and had more energy around that last meal and you pause and you go, am I doing the right thing? You right. know, wait a minute, what is this? Yeah. But in the case of Patu, he, as soon as I fed him that meal, he just went back and dropped his energy into that place of I'm ready. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you, at what point, if you saw that with Piggy and how it played out at the end, could you share a little bit about, you know, when the vet came? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, he really was incredibly obstinate and right to the last moment. <laughs> Um, he only had the use of his front arms. And at some point I turned my back and he had drug himself out into the backyard, which is where he loved to be. And, you know, I turn around and he's out there mowing down my tarragon bush. Um, <laughs> just so it, it, it is tricky to see that sort of, um, energy and intention. Um, but I, I, you know, I was at this point very comfortable with the fact that that he was not living a super dignified life at this point. 
Um, so it, it's, you know, it was a nice last day and it is easy to have these thoughts in, in those last moments of, am I doing the right thing? But I think having worked on it for a few days, I was resolved that, that, you know, he was tired and, and ready. And I felt like he was in agreement, even if he wasn't telling me it was time to go. I think he was very much in agreement. And when the vet came, um, you know, she kind of prepared me for the fact that sometimes rabbits will really fight for that first shot. Um, and, and I was supposed to really hold him down. He didn't fight it. Um, and, you know, as as we waited for it to kind of settle in, she was really and she and she had said that the anesthetic might actually just kill him because rabbits are so sensitive. Well, it not only did it not take him out, it took a while for the anesthetic to take its full effect. And we're talking about a teeny tiny little body here. Um, but he was just so strong and so full of energy and just so obstinate that he didn't even give in to the drugs all that easily. And it took a while for the anesthetic to fully take its effect before she could give him his final shot. And I just have to point out something because we talked about how children mirror us. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think you know where I'm headed. I'm thinking Picky's obstinance Mirrored yeah. something pretty beautiful yeah. in you, too. He yeah. had the same fighting spirit that mm -hmm. you have always had. And I want to end on a quote you said to me, and it was this. I had the audacity to know that I needed more. I deserved more. And I was going to get it. <laughs> Shar, thank you so much for being here today and sharing many beautiful stories with us. They are impactful. They are healing. And they are uplifting and inspiring to all of those who will hear them. Your generosity, my friend, is most appreciated. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.